Bibles, now is the time to grab those. We are going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, then somewhere nearby you, either in the pew in front of you or in behind you, ask around. There's going to be a Bible there. Uh, you can turn there uh, to Acts chapter 2. I mentioned this in the first service. It actually has nothing to do with the message, but I'm compelled to share it anyways. Um, this morning I got up and went outside to start my car and there was frost and ice all over the windshield. Um, and there's a couple, if you don't know me that well, then you don't know that I hate winter uh, with a passion. And there's always two days that really just kind of send me into a little bit of a depression where the first, the first time I can see my breath in the fall and the first time my window is, fogged or is, is iced over. Um, but today it didn't bother me. And uh, yesterday morning was really cold when I started the car and it didn't bother me. And Friday morning was really cold when I started the car and it didn't bother me because I, I have what I could only describe as like an inner warmth. And I felt it since Tuesday night. Um, and some of you know where I'm going with this, right? Tuesday night, the Chicago Cubs beat the St. Louis Cardinals and eliminated them from the playoffs. And so I have felt just kind of this glow ever since that is just, it will probably take months to be removed. And so Cardinal fans, I want you to think about that this morning, all right? That I am finding joy in your misery. So let's just, that's a great start to a sermon, right? So let's go from there. Uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, last month in Berlin. Uh, we had a team that went to Berlin, and we had a day in which we uh, were just there to clean the church that we were there to serve. Um, and so we divvied up different responsibilities and had different um, things to do. But this building that they meet in has a, a lot of glass. Uh, they have all glass doors. Clearly all the windows are glass. And they have these walls and entry that are just all made of glass. There's just glass everywhere. And so uh, three or four of us grabbed this glass cleaner and went to work because we knew it was going to be a big job. Um, so as we're, but as we're cleaning this, we're moving along, and we, we're looking back at the windows we've cleaned, and they're not looking very good, right? And we discover that as we've gone along, the cleaner that we're actually, even though it was called glass cleaner, is leaving this nasty film and grime over the window. So no matter how hard we rubbed, or no matter how thorough we were, no matter what, it just made, the window looked worse than when we started. Um, so I decided it was time to take a walk. We need to go down to the store and buy a new glass cleaner because... Uh, I don't like pointless jobs, right? Because it's pointless to try to do a job if you don't have the right tools for it. You can work all you want, but if you don't have the right tools, then what are you doing? You might end up doing more harm than good. For instance, I would not suggest brushing your teeth with a toilet brush. Okay, this is just not a good idea. There's going to be psychological ramifications, right? But we got to have the right tools for the job. So we're taking this journey through the book of Acts together as a church. And last week we finished chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Jesus hands his church its mission. That as the church of Jesus, we are to be his witnesses and we are to do this where we live in our country to those we know, those we don't, and to those we have the hardest time loving and all the way to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus hands his church their mission and they wait in Jerusalem until they receive the green light from God. And now that they have their mission, we're going to see today in chapter 2 that they're going to be given the tools necessary to complete that mission. All right, so God has called his church to multiply Right, that we are to take what he has invested in us and then have it multiply out from us to change and influence many other people. And at the start of chapter 2, all of the followers of Jesus are in one room. They're in an upper room together because there aren't that many of them at this point. Church hasn't actually been established. And so they're waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus commanded them to do and they're waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that this is the day of Pentecost. Okay, now if you don't know Jewish festivals, that doesn't mean anything to you. So I'll explain it. The day of Pentecost was part of the festival of weeks that is mentioned five times in the Old Testament. And it was a celebration of the harvest and of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. And so it was one of three pilgrimages 
a year that a Jewish male would, would be, have to take to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival because God required it in his law. And Luke tells us in verse 5 of Acts 2 that there were actually devout Jews from every nation who had come to Jerusalem for this festival. And we talked last week about the benefits and wisdom of just waiting on the Lord. And this is a great picture as to why it makes sense to do so. Right? Because in chapter 1, Jesus tells these guys two things. He gives them two direct commands. And the first is this. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the second is that you are to be my witnesses to people all over this world. Now, had they ignored the first command, right? They would have had to travel all over the world without knowing where they were going to people who have no idea what they're talking about. And they would have to do it all in their own power. This is an uphill climb for sure. Or they can just wait on God. And he can give them not only the power of the Holy Spirit, but also strategically wait for a day in which the whole world comes to their doorstep. Now that's a much better start. And Luke tells us that as the followers of Jesus sat in the room, all of a sudden there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a huge windstorm. And there appeared uh, to be tongues of fire that came and settled on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And all the sound and all the commotion got the attention of everyone in the city. And all of these Jewish people from nations all over the world came rushing to where these believers were. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they began to tell them about Jesus in each one of their own native languages. Right? And it was a crazy scene that left everyone all, people from all different countries are saying, how are these men speaking in my language? Except in every crowd, there's always a few who simply miss out on what's going on. Right? In verse 13, we're told that there were mockers in the crowd who cry out, this isn't special, these guys are just drunk. Right? So Peter steps forward with the other 11 apostles and he has something to say and he addresses the crowd in front of them. And he says, first off, guys, don't be confused by what you see here. These guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. After all, what you see before you is the power of the Holy Spirit. And this spirit was promised by God back when Job prophesied about this. And what you are witnessing is the fulfillment of that promise. And we see the first tool given to the church by God for this mission of multiplication. The Holy Spirit will be involved in everything in Acts from this point forward. He will lead and direct and guide and and restrain and empower these believers as they are witnesses of Jesus, all because the Holy Spirit is Jesus' spirit. We talked uh, a couple months ago in 1 Corinthians 12 about how the Holy Spirit's role may manifest itself differently in our lives and time, but make no mistake about it, he is still our greatest tool. As we live out this mission of multiplying Jesus' fame around our earth, we need and rely on the Holy Spirit to do that simply cannot do this without his power. We cannot accomplish anything without his going before us. We cannot be effective without his guidance. And so now Peter stands before this group, armed with the very presence of God inside of him, and he's about to unleash his second tool on this crowd. And we're going to read together what that is. We're going to read a long section. So look with me in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Follow along in your Bibles. Verse 22 says this. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and brought him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. 
No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. And David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven. At God's right hand and the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. So after explaining what it is they're seeing, Peter takes advantage of the captive audience in front of him and he fulfills the mission that was given to him by telling them about Jesus. And there are aspects of these 14 verses that were very directed towards a Jewish audience. The tie-ins to King David, the, the, uh, the explanations of David's prophecies, all that stuff would be a starting point that all of these Jewish men and women would understand and be able to grasp. But what comforts me so much about these verses is that outside of those tie-ins to David, if you've spent any time at all in a gospel-believing church, you've heard this message from Peter before. Repeatedly. Hundreds of times. Because this message is our tool for multiplying God's church. This message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul writes about in Romans 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you see what has happened here in Acts 2? These believers, they waited in obedience for the moment in which God made it clear that they were to go and fulfill the mission they were given. And on the day they were to start, God gives them two incredible tools. And both of these tools contain the power of God himself. The first one, the Holy Spirit, is literally God's presence and power. They were to use the Spirit and rely on him and be empowered on him. And the second was this message of the good news, the message of the gospel. It was the gospel that tells us the truth about ourselves and about Jesus. And that gospel also contains, according to the Bible, the power of God behind it. And here's what this means. If we at First Baptist North are going to take this command to multiply seriously, we must use these tools. We must, as a church, follow the leading of God's spirit. We must rely on his immense power. We must pray and ask him to move ahead of us, preparing the hearts of those who we will take his message to. And we must learn and proclaim and defend and triumph and declare until there is no more breath in our lungs the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has to be the basis of everything that we do. It needs to be what determines our priorities. It needs to direct how we go about fulfilling our God-given mission to multiply. It needs to be what we champion and make a big deal about around here. The gospel needs to be the focus that flows through every single ministry, every single Sunday school class, youth group, small group, worship service, meeting, and event that we put on. We are a church, yes. We are a group of Christians, yes. We're a Baptist church, yes. But make no mistake about it. Our identity is that we are a church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation of all who believe, and so we make a big deal about it. 
and it's a tool that we've been given. We simply cannot accomplish our mission. We cannot be the church we've been called to be. We are nothing without the gospel. So it's good for us to proclaim it over and over and over again, to, to remind ourselves over, to see what it is again and again. And so today I want us to pull things out of this talk from Peter. And in each one that we pull out, we're going to see key aspects of the gospel in them. And the first is what we find in verse 23. Verse 23, Peter says, God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. Listen to this line. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Peter was making friends that day, wasn't he? He stands in front of this crowd in Jerusalem just weeks. I'm talking just weeks removed from Jesus' crucifixion. He tells them, you saw all the wonderful things that God did through Jesus. And your response to this was, you killed him. You killed him. Not exactly the introduction you'd choose if you're trying to make people feel good, right? But it's absolutely true. You kill, they killed him. Because here's the most powerful things, here's one of the most powerful things about the gospel of Jesus, is it tells you the truth about yourself. Listen, there were some in that crowd that Peter was talking to who were complicit in the plot to arrest Jesus and have him crucified. There were others who called out for him to be crucified. There were more who lined the streets and spit on him and threw stones at him and mocked him. And yes, there were even more who weren't even in Jerusalem on that day. But Peter says to all of them, you killed him. It was your sins. It was your unbelief. It was your refusal to accept him as Messiah. He came to you and you repeatedly rejected him. The first thing that the gospel of Jesus does is it peels back the layers and it reveals to us who we really are. Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Colossians 1 says that you are far away from God. You are his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. You see, the gospel of Jesus proclaims to you this truth. You are not right. You are not okay. You don't have it all figured out. And even though that seems like a tough pill to swallow, there is freedom in it. Because ask me, answer me this, why is it that every single religion that has ever been formed has in its belief and practices things that you must do to appease the Almighty? We have self-denials, pilgrimages, meditations, praying a certain number of times a day, repetitive chants, religious ceremonies, uh, monetary donations, etc., etc., etc. All these religions have this in this because we all know, deep down we all know. Because if God actually came to me and said, Brett, you are doing a great job. I mean, you're knocking out of the park. You are perfect. You're getting everything right. That would ring hollow with me because I know I'm not. I do things that are selfish. I do things that are hurt others. I, I know I'm not perfect. And so for someone to tell me that I am immediately rings cheap and hollow. I have two older brothers. Uh, and Danny is the closest one in age to me. And we all went through Cloverdale schools, right? I went through Cloverdale from kindergarten through 12th grade. And it's a small uh, community, right? So we had, I had around 70 people in my graduating class. And so when I went through each of the Cloverdale schools, whether it's elementary, middle school, or high school, I would have all the same teachers my brother had, right? So they, they just, there weren't that many teachers. So we had to go and follow the same pa- pattern. And I hated following after Danny. Couldn't stand it. Listen, Danny loves to read. He has a photographic memory. He's really good at art, and I'm the definition of basic. 
Okay, so he and I could not be more opposite. And what happened was every single time I had a teacher that I previously had Danny, I always let them down and did not match their level of expectations. I was a huge disappointment, 13 years in a row, okay? And this couldn't have been more true for anybody other than Mrs. Fish. Mrs. Fish taught art at Cloverdale, okay? Danny excels at art. And I simply cannot overstate for you how limited my art skills are. But since she'd had Danny before me and we were related, Mrs. Fish was somehow convinced that if she just worked hard enough and, 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 and did enough skills with me that deep down inside of me there's an artist in there. And I got to tell you, there isn't. There never has been and never will be. So, but she kept insisting that there was. And so she actually had me stay after school. She'd have me do these drills that were designed to help me access the right side of my brain. She worked with me one-on-one, and she consistently told me that one of these days I was going to draw a great sketch or, or build a nice sculpture or paint a beautiful picture, and it just never happened. And it wasn't ever going to happen, right? And finally, towards the end of the school year, she admitted to me, you're not an artist. You're just not, right? The poor woman had tried so hard. And she just had nothing to work with. But here's the thing. I wasn't offended when she told me that. I knew it. I was relieved that finally she saw the truth. Because there's relief when someone tells you the truth about yourself. Especially when you know it to be true. And in the gospel of Jesus, God comes to each of us and says, you're not okay. You're not okay. In fact, you're evil. Actually, embedded in your very nature is the propensity to do what is wrong. And you are a sinner, and because of that, you're separated from me. And God says, in my eyes, listen, you're not a good person. In fact, you're actually my enemy. And this message might not fill stadiums, but it will absolutely change lives because deep down we know something's not right about us. And God comes along and says, you're right, something is wrong in you, and it's sin. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we're told the truth about ourselves. And secondly, proclaiming the gospel fulfills our mission. Do you notice what Peter said in verse 32? Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. This is exactly what they were told to do. Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses. And as soon as he gets the chance, Peter's message is, this is what happened with Jesus. These are the facts and we are witnesses of them. And if you read through this message from Peter, nowhere in verses 22 to 36 does he ever talk about himself being the answer. In fact, the only time he even mentions himself is to call himself a witness of Jesus. And in making the gospel the central thing that we proclaim around here, we fulfill our mission of being Jesus' witness and not our own. And here's how this plays out. If you're a guest this morning, listen, we are so excited that you are here. We want you here. We want you to find a place here. We want you to plug in here. And we believe that God has worked in your life to bring you here today, that you are not here by accident. But we do not want you here or invite you here to be impressed with us. That's the opposite of what we want. We want you here so that you can hear the witness and story of Jesus. We invite you to him because in him you'll find everything you need. The gospel tells us the truth about ourselves. It makes us witnesses of Jesus and not ourselves. And also tells the truth about him. Look at verse 36. Peter wraps up his final thought. Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. You guys rejected him. You killed him. You crucified. But guess what? None of it worked, Peter says. Because he is Lord and Messiah. He is Lord, which means that he reigns. 
Right? The Bible is clear, crystal clear, that Jesus is God. He is the supreme power in all the universe. Here's what Colossians 1 says about him in just three verses. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. Listen, there is no power in the universe greater than Jesus Christ. There is no authority above Jesus Christ. There is no rule that reigns over Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He is first in everything. There's no one whose opinion of your life matters more than Jesus. There's no one whom you should fear more than Jesus. There's no one else to whom you should bow other than Jesus. He holds all creation together, and if he wanted, he could wipe us all out in an instant because he is Lord. But he is also Messiah, the promised deliverer from God, the Messiah who came to set his people free. Which is why the Lord of all the universe ended up hanging on a cross and suffering and dying. Romans 5 says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Colossians 1 continues, through him, through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on the earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body, and as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single thought. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you the truth about yourself, that you are a sinner, and because of your sins, you are separated from God, an enemy of his, that you have no hope of heaven and no chance of eternal life on your own, but the gospel also tells you the truth of Jesus, that he is everything that you are not. He's everything that you aren't. You are a sinner and he is perfect. You are mortal and he is eternal. You are limited and his power knows no end. And Jesus, that Jesus came and lived the life, the perfect sinless life that you could never live, and he took your place on the cross so that through his own physical death, he would pay the debt that you owe to God and bring you back to God. That through his death, you could find forgiveness. That through his death, you could have life. That through his death, you could have eternal life in heaven with him. Because he's everything you're not, and he did everything you couldn't do. And Colossians tells us that he did it for the sole reason to reconcile you back to himself. The gospel tells you the truth about who you are. It tells you the truth about who Jesus is. And it's a message that demands a response. Look what happened when Peter finished in verse 37. Acts 2, 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? But Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Their hearts were pierced by the truth they heard about themselves and about Jesus. They knew they were sinners. They knew that Jesus was everything they were not. They knew he had died. They knew they'd killed him. They knew he'd risen again. They were there. They witnessed all of it themselves. And so they asked the million dollar question, what do we do in response to this? 
And I want us to see what Peter says, but also what he doesn't say. He doesn't invite them to a religion. He doesn't hand them a sheet full of practices. He doesn't tell them to remember anything. He just says repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And that baptism is simply an outer expression of the inner repentance. Repentance, you see, is the key. This idea of repentance, this is what separates the gospel of Jesus. It's what separates Jesus from everything else out there. In the 1930s and 40s, the Nazi government formed a series of concentration camps. If you've gone through any schooling at all, you've heard of these. They ushered into these camps, which are prisons, anyone they didn't like, political prisoners, Jewish people, other groups and nationalities they saw as lesser. But at the entryway of a number of these camps, including Sachsenhausen, Auschwitz, Dachau, others, they put up a phrase, right, to greet the prisoners as they came into the camp for the first time. And in German, all the signs said, Arbeit macht frei. And in English, this simply means, work will set you free. And they would sell these prisoners on this idea. We're bringing you in here, but if you work hard enough, if you follow the rules enough, it is through your labor that you will find freedom. And the truth was anything but that. Didn't matter how hard they worked. They were never destined for freedom. They were either worked to death, executed, or remained in prison until the Allies liberated the camps. It's just a lie. Now, for thousands of years, religion has told the human race the exact same lie. Work will set you free. All you got to do is check these boxes. All you got to do is say these prayers. All you got to do is dress this way. All you got to do is go here and do that. All you got to do is repeat this saying. All you got to do is hold on to these rules, and you'll eventually be free. And people all over the world in every period of history have done it and have devoted themselves to this and have remained just as enslaved and imprisoned by their sin as they were before. Because work simply does not set you free. Jesus Christ is the only one who said you could never do enough. He's the only one who came and then did the work for you. He's the only one who took your place. He's the only one who died on your behalf and the only one who defeated death. Jesus Christ is the only one who can set you free. In John 8, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. This crowd says to Peter, Peter, we are convicted. Our hearts are pierced by your words. What What do we do? Repent, he tells them. You must repent. God is not looking for you to check off boxes or repeat sayings or pay money or anything like that. God does not want you to join a religion. He wants your heart. And this word repent is a powerful word, but there's, here's what it means. The Greek word for repent literally means to think anew. This is turning 180 degrees. Right? It's, it's to see your life in a whole new way. It's turning from your life of serving you and answering to you and trying to save yourself and relying on you to turning around completely and recognizing that you are not the answer and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ who is. Asking him to forgive your sins, to, to give you life and to take control. You live for him. You answer to him. You praise him. You make much of him in response to all that he did for you. And yes, there will be things about your life that change. You will do things like getting baptized and read his word and serving his church and asking him to continue to remove sins through your life, but you will not do those things in order to earn his favor because that's impossible. You will do them because he all he has already done for you. 
You'll do them because he saved you. The gospel tells you the truth about yourself. It tells you the truth about Jesus. It demands a response. And listen, it changes lives. You don't have to watch much television to realize there are a lot of messages out there about things that can change your life, but none of them work. Listen, working out and eating right will probably improve your health and physical appearance. A promotion, new car, house can make you feel good for a new time, but they won't change who you are. But Jesus can. Just a few weeks before this day in Acts 2, Peter had a chance to be a witness of Jesus. Not once, not twice, but on three separate occasions, he chickened out and denied he knew Jesus at all. And the reason was he was just trying to save himself. Just weeks later in Acts 2, we see the exact same Peter in the exact same city standing in front of thousands, including the group he was terrified of that night and proclaimed, you know who Jesus was and you killed him. And he rose from the dead, and we are witnesses of it, and God has made him Lord and Messiah, and you need to repent and give your life to him. He is a totally different person. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 5 promises that if anyone is in Christ, meaning they repent and give their lives to him, they become a whole new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Listen, nothing other than Jesus in his gospel does that. Nothing. And this gospel is the message that God has given his church to multiply. Verse 41, we're told that 3,000 people repented on that day and gave their lives to Jesus. And we've come to the point in our time where we need to ask what those people in Jerusalem asked. Knowing this, what should we do? What do we do? Well, there are two things I want us to take from here. And the first is this. The first is for those who belong to Christ. The first is for those of us in this room who are followers of his. We must proclaim and defend and protect and triumph this message. We simply cannot ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it's the power of God to save any who believe. We simply cannot change it or alter it in any way. We must express it in its great fullness. We must allow the gospel to form our strategies, to set our priorities and determine what we give our money and time and passions and resources to. The question that we must ask of our staff and our missionaries and our small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and our members and even all of us ourselves is this. How is the proclamation of the gospel a part of your life and ministry? Because it has to be. We don't have a choice in this. Go into the world with the mission of being his witness. Go into the world with the banner of his gospel. Go into the world with the power of his spirit. We must do this. The second thing is for those of of you who do not yet know or follow Jesus. And it's simple. You've got to embrace this. You have to allow this to change your life. You must repent. Stop trying to be your own answer. Stop being confused by religion. Stop, stop trying to understand everything you're on. Just let God tell you the truth about yourself. You are not good. Let God tell you about the truth of Jesus. He's good enough for you. You cannot ever be good enough. You cannot earn your way to heaven, but Jesus already did all of that on your behalf. You just need to embrace it and accept it and believe it and give your life to him. And you will find that he really does change your life, both now and for all eternity. There's no one like him. 
no one else who does what he does. So give your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful for this message. For this gospel, this good news that you've handed to us to proclaim to all the world until we can proclaim it no more. And God, I'm so thankful that you tell us the truth about ourselves. But we're not the answer. We're not good enough. We'll never match your standard. And Lord, even though in our pride we want to push against that, even though we want to believe that we are, we know deep down we're not. So God, I pray for those who have accepted this in their lives, that you would embolden them to go out and multiply, to proclaim this gospel to their world. God, that we would not be ashamed of it. But Lord, for everybody in this room who does not yet know you, who came in here today confused about religion, about what you want, make it be clear to them. You don't want anything from them other than their hearts. You don't need them to check off any other boxes than to just surrender and say, yes, Lord. I want Jesus to take over my life and forgive my sins. God, may the power of your spirit and the power of your gospel convince them to do that right now. And may we celebrate with them today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song as we do. If you need to come up and pray about anything, I'll be up here at the front. We can grab other people. Do, do, do come up. This is too important. But you just go ahead and stand as Brandon leads us.